This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. This is Wrestling with Feels On. Thank you for joining us for this episode. On this episode, I have a very distinguished guest. This is Mr. Harv Aronson. Harv is a podcaster as well as an author. He is the author of the book, Pro Football's Most Passionate Fans. He's also a prolific sports writer, writing for publications like Gridiron Greats. And he is a regular contributor to the website Abstract Sport. And Harv's podcast is called Total Sports Recall. It's a weekly podcast. It's part of our growing family here at the Sports City Network, uh, which we are both so proud to be a part of. Harv, welcome to Wrestling with Your Zone. You're only the second guest I've ever interviewed on the show. So. Uh, well, Ariel, thanks. Thanks for having me on, and uh, I look forward to this. And uh, you know, I'm sure you'll have many more interviews after this. But uh, thank you for having me on, and this is a, this is going to be a fun interview, I'm sure. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I had a really good time going back and forth with you in the emails when we first uh, started talking, and uh, I'm glad we were able to make this happen. This is great. Um, so hard, I got to tell you, you know, in, in preparation uh, for speaking with you, I uh, wanted to hear the podcast. I really wanted to get immersed in uh, the kind of topics that, that you talked about. And uh, one of the things you'll recall that I, I when I uh, was setting this up, we were setting this up together. I sent you an email. I said, hey, is there any one podcast that really stands out that you want to talk about? And uh, you mentioned the Ken Kent Washington episode. So I went mm-hmm. and I listened to the Kent episode, uh, Kent Washington episode, and I was floored. I was really floored. This is an amazing story. It's a story that I don't think a lot of people know about, whether or not they're sports fans, and I think they need to know about this, uh, whether or not they're sports fans. This is a uh, historical story. So with that in mind, with that context, Harv. Um, can you tell us more about Kent Washington and why his story is so important to sports history and history in general? Absolutely. So Kent Washington, for those who don't know, and a lot of people don't know him, and um, he, he's, very, he's a very modest gentleman. So in speaking to him, um, he doesn't like really to push his story out there, but I think he's coming to realize how important it really was to society and to basketball itself. Kent Washington was a um, stud high school basketball player. Um, he went to Southampton University after that on a scholarship. Didn't think he was good enough in the pros to make the pros. So he refused to even try. Uh, but instead, when he was in college, his college team was invited to go over and play in Poland. And while there, uh, one of the Polish coaches saw him play and said, listen, when you're done with college, if you're ever interested in playing professional basketball, come over here and I'll put you on my team. And he kept that in mind. So when he was done with college, he went over to play in Poland. But the key thing about Kent Washington is, that he became the not only first African-American, but professional basketball player to play in communist Poland, as it was back in 1977, around that time. So he became the first professional basketball player to play in 
communist Poland. And they were under martial law. So his story is very, very bizarre because he went over there to play. He became an instant hero. And it wasn't just because he was the only African-American to, to play over there. and He was one of the very few of the, even in that country. And he would tell me that he was on the streets walking to go to the gym or whatever to a game. And there was tanks lined up and down the streets. Uh, the guys in the tanks would come out of their tanks to get his autograph. He became a, a, a huge star in Poland. And he played there for quite a few years, and then he ended up playing in Switzerland for a while. Um, but the, the the great thing about Kent Washington is that he set uh, a precedent by do- going over there and playing professionally and becoming the first one to to go through martial law and play professional basketball. And every game, he said, was a sellout. And he just became a, a huge uh, hero and star in Poland. And to this day, if you go over there and you ask, Polish people in that country who Kent Washington is, they'll be able to tell you. And the funny part is, is that if you go to uh, millions.co where um, I also post my podcast, uh, there was a comedy film made in Poland called Mies. And I think it, in English, it's the teddy bear. And so there's a scene where this gentleman and his wife are sitting around watching basketball on television and they show uh, a little short scene from the Harlem Globetrotters. And the gentleman says to his girlfriend or wife, whoever she is, um, yeah, I used to be a black basketball player back in the day. And she's like, what? And so they he p- takes off his robe and it splits the scene to the living room. <clears throat> and there jumps in Kent Washington dribbling a basketball around. And so he's like doing a little <laughs> dribbling exhibition and the, the gentleman you know, puts back on the robe and, and goes back to his wife and says, see, I was a black basketball player. It's hilarious. And that video is at the end of my podcast on millions.co where I also pod- post podcasts. If anybody wants to see that, it was funny. Yeah. Yeah. I remember when I was relating that, uh, that scene and it was, it was so funny, um, that, that, that happened, uh, you know, that, that scene itself is, is funny, but it, it, it goes to show you how, how far his reach went, right? That he was uh, used in a comedy film in Poland. And I mm-hmm. believe he even, uh, because of his time in Poland, uh, he wound up uh, speaking the language as well, right? Yes. Yeah, he speaks the language. And <clears throat> as a matter of fact, his daughter became a, um, I want to say it was volley- softball or volleyball. I can't remember, but she became a really great athlete. And, uh, she is now in um, the Netherlands, uh, living there permanently. So that is where Kent is to this day. So he has two homes. He goes to Netherlands back and forth, and and, and back to New York in the United States. Um, but they they also say about that movie Mies that it is one of the biggest and best known comedies ever in Poland uh, movie history. So he's a part of it. That's there you go. It seems like he has a. Um the ability to kind of uh, immerse himself in history. You know, some people have that ability that they can be at the right place at the right time and, and be a part of history uh, in the making and uh, almost like a Forrest Gump type. <laughs> right? Yeah. And, and he, like I said, he's a modest gentleman and he, and he kind of shies away from the attention and, and he did write a book called Kentomania because that's what they called it over there in Poland. Um, and so uh, he, he Concentrate us to shy away from the attention, but more and more people are convincing him. Listen, Kent, you've got to get your story out there; it's important. Um, and I think he's starting to yeah, attach I, himself to I, that I, and I realize it. Up there, Harv, that uh, that was another thing that got to me was the fact that um, 
this was news to me when I'm listening to your podcast and I'm, I'm listening to Ken relay his story. I'm saying to myself, why don't I know about this? And uh, mm -hmm. why wasn't this a movie? Because he's talking about, you know, having a squat over a hole that uh, serves as a toilet when he's in Poland and how people are, I hate to be old graphic, but they're, they're kind of uh, wiping themselves with newspapers and not toilet paper. Mm -hmm. And I'm saying, wow, that alone, the cultural shock uh, is uh, is worthy of a, of a movie, you know, or, yeah. or at least some sort of documentary. Yeah. And I told him that I said they, you know, I really he reached out to ESPN, actually, and they never returned his call. And I said that that, that is a real shame. And I think that's uh, disrespect completely to not even consider doing your story. Um, and I actually tried to write to ESPN myself and said, listen, I interviewed this guy. You really need to because I thought he would be perfect for 30 on 30. Um, that would have been a great yeah. story. Um, uh, and, and they don't, yeah. for some reason, don't want to do it. But he did say there's a Danish documentarist that is, uh, looking into doing a documentary on his, his life. So hopefully that will pan out because he deserves it. Have you, um, been in touch with Kent since your podcast, uh, episode and, uh, any, anything new on, on, on any fronts with him? Yeah, absolutely. Um, <clears throat> for those who have never seen millions.co, they, they kind of sponsor athletes. Now they're, and I'm sure you've seen Arnie's email. Um, they are now taking on our podcast as part of their network as well. And, uh, you can post your own podcast there. So I redid the Kent Washington interview to, cause you can put graphics behind your interviews on that, uh, podcast platform. So I did a lot of pictures and things and put the video at the end. And I emailed him just the other day to tell him that I redid it. He went back and watched it. He loved it. Uh, but he is still in the Netherlands. So he hasn't returned to the States yet. Um, but again, in speaking to the guy personally, what a guy, such a nice gentleman. Um, and you can tell he's just so well deserving of any attention he can get. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things that struck me uh, about him was that he tried so hard. Um, uh, he found it such a struggle to be humble uh, during his writing, uh, consulting his wife and asking her, honey, is this mm -hmm. too, you know, braggadocious of me to write this right. uh, about my skills? <laughs> and, you know, I'm saying to myself, try to find an athlete nowadays who would even consider asking their wife if this is too braggadocious. Well, there was one part of the interview, and you'll remember it because it actually happened, was that he was at a basketball game, and, and even my wife's like, you're going to mention that in the interview? And I was like, yeah, absolutely. It's part of his book. When he was at a game, oh, standing at the free throw line, the they, fans started chanting Kunta Kinte. And I thought that was racist. I thought it was you know derogatory towards a person. I said, how'd you handle that? I said, and, and he said, you know what? He said, if they really were racist and they really meant that, he says they wouldn't have jumped off their, their seats at the end of the game and greet me, ask me for interviews. He said it was a joke. Uh, it was more of a joke than anything else. So he, he laughs it off. Um, but I told him, I said, in this day and age, if you tried something like that, forget it. I mean, all hell would break loose. Yeah, you couldn't do that in the United States. But I, I no. understood why he was so gracious about it and was so um you know and and took it lightheartedly because you know at the end of the day those fans 
they were just trying to rouse him, right? Because yeah. he was uh, playing mm-hmm. their team, but uh, playing against their team. But in the end, all those fans showed an, an outpouring of love, and uh, you know he was willing to overlook that. And they did. I think they and did. I should have posted it. There's another documentary out there that he and his wife went back to Poland, and this is just a few years ago. I want to say it was 2019, and there was these older gentlemen coming out of their homes and recognizing him like almost 40 years later and asking for his autograph. That's how well known he is in Poland to this day. They still see him as a basketball hero over there. Yeah. Yeah. And didn't, it wasn't there a part where he said that, uh, that even grandchildren of those people that were his fans back then were, were still knew his name and still fans of his. Yes, they do. Yes, they do. And here in the United States, I had no idea who he was. I mean, I, I, I think through Sports History Network, I read about his book, and that's why I reached out to him, and he was gracious enough to come on and, and be interviewed. And he actually, um, Rick Loza has a basketball podcast on our network here. He also interviewed him uh, a couple of weeks later. So I had no idea who he was, but I, I am sure glad that I just stumbled upon him and had the, the great opportunity to be able to interview him and now become a friend. I mean, we exchange emails. Oh, that's great. That's awesome. Yeah, he seems like such a down-to-earth uh, gentleman, uh, a man of uh, many talents who uh, really downplays and worries about, uh, you know, overselling himself. I think I think more people need to know about him. I think it would make mm-hmm. a great uh, documentary, if not a movie, right? right. It has all the elements. It has fish out of water, um, first black athlete, which mm-hmm. breaks barriers, and mm-hmm. it also historically to be interesting to people to see what the communist era was like back then. Absolutely. He can be up. Yep. And he'd be able to tell it. Yeah. So, um, moving on, because again, congratulations on that interview. I thought it was great. Thank you for Thank bringing you. that to, to oh, yeah. the public's attention. I appreciate that. Uh, yeah. And just to, to, to repeat the title of, uh, Kent Washington's book, Kento mania. A black basketball virtuoso in communist Poland. So, if anybody uh, wants to read that, you know, look it up on the internet. I'm sure they will uh, link you to where you can purchase the book um, and support him because he he needs it, and uh, we all need it. This is important information to have. So, um, Parv, I, I have um, just a minor, minor quibble with you over one of your podcasts, and okay. that is. Uh, the one where you talk about, and uh, and this was actually the first one I listened to, uh, baseball's greatest players. Uh, and again, this is a minor quibble. It's all all in good fun. Uh, you picked Robin Yap over Paul Molitor as the best brewer because of uh, Yount's performance was great, but you you cited that. Uh, what gave him the edge over Molitor was that he played his whole career in Milwaukee. Now, contrast that with your pick of Dave Winfield over Tony Gwynn as the best Padre. Despite the fact, and here's the quibble, <laughs> despite the fact that Gwynn played his whole career with the Padre. So uh, can you explain your rationale for that pick? I'm very well, curious. That is- between Yunt and uh, Molitor, that was a tough choice. I mean, it could have gone either way. Uh, Gwynn and Winfield the same way. 
Um, maybe I was more impressed by Winfield's power as opposed to Gwynn's hitting ability. Not taking anything away from Tony Gwynn. What a great player, an amazing player. And yeah, you're right. Winfield went on to play for the Yankees. I think he might have even played for a couple other teams. Um, but he was an original Padre. Um, so perhaps I was swayed by that. But uh, I want your listeners to know I'm not taking anything away from Dave, from uh, Tony Gwynn. He was a fantastic baseball player, and I loved watching him play. Um, so, yeah, it could have gone either way there, too. Uh, it's all personal choice. You know, there's no fact that really can establish who's the greatest ever. I mean, you can use stats, but some people will, will differ. But uh, thanks for pointing that out. Uh, that's a good point. Yeah, no worries. But I mean, you know, I, I enjoyed your, your pickings, and I agreed with a lot of them, actually, most of them. Uh, that was the only one I, I was, uh, and I'll tell you why. Because growing up, I was a fan of two teams. Uh, I'll just let you know. I was born in Brooklyn, raised in Brooklyn, New York, and uh, I'd always been a Yankee fan because that's the first team that my dad took me to see live. I've gone to several Yankees games, so I was a Yankees fan automatically, right? Uh, and I guess genetically too. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's usually how that works. But the, the, the other two teams that I was really excited about uh, were the San Diego Padres and the Pittsburgh Pirates. Now, you're going to laugh at this, but the reason I love Padres, uh, and this is why I had that quibble about the Tony Gwynn, mm-hmm. is because of their ugly uniform. I <laughs> love... <laughs> I love it's all Ray Kroc's fault. Oh, and it's got that <laughs> McDonald's uh, look, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I, I love the uniform. I thought it was so funky, you know, the brown, the gold, mm. the yellow, it's, you know. And I became a fan of, of the team. And I thought that the, even though the style they used for the text of the Padres was very cool. So that's yeah. why I was a Padres fan. Uh, it was a Pittsburgh, a Pittsburgh fan because... It was the first World Series I'd ever seen. I'd never seen a World Series, and it was the Pittsburgh Pirates against the Baltimore Orioles, 1977, um, tell us some memories that you have. What what you think is were the best Pirates team? Uh, maybe your feelings about that particular Pirates team. Oh my God! Uh, I was born and raised in Pittsburgh. So for those who don't know that, uh, I I've lived there from the time I was born in '59 until I left in '84. Um, I've been in Three River Stadium. I can't tell you how many times watching how many baseball games. Uh, I started watching baseball and the pirates in 71 when they won the world series also beating the Orioles. never forget it my father was watching the seventh game when i did his bedroom roberto clemente comes to the plate smacks a home run and instantly i fell in love with baseball and he became my boyhood hero to this day still my favorite baseball player all time uh so 71 basically plays a little bit favorites to me because that was my first team i really watched and it still to this day remains as my favorite team they had so many colorful characters on that team they were a great team beat the baltimore orioles that year and then in 79 eight years later they went back same team baltimore orioles um and 
still, I was in college at the time, so I was close to Pittsburgh. I uh, went to Slippery Rock University. Now, now is university. It used to be Slippery Rock State College. But I was close enough to Pittsburgh that I said, I'm going to the World Series. So tickets back then were cheap. It was easy to get a World Series ticket. So very exciting. Wow. Um, and that, of course, was the We Are family. What's that? As a side, how much did you pay for the ticket? I would say they were probably somewhere between ten and twenty dollars, something like that. Um, now, years later, I had the opportunity to go to the Super Bowl when Steelers and uh, Arizona Cardinals played Super Bowl Forty Three, and I got a ticket for that. I paid twenty five hundred dollars for that ticket, so it shows you the difference in years and pricing. Uh, but seventy nine, uh, we are family team. That was another fun team, uh, very colorful team, and you're talking about uniforms. They had multiple versions of uniforms back then where they could change the tops, the bottoms, different colors. Uh, and when you're talking about the Potters uniforms, of course, I remember the, those brown, ugly uniforms. But the Houston Astros came pretty close to having the ugliest <laughs> uniforms back then. They had some real, like real uniform too. Yeah, <laughs> different for sure. Well, hey, you're talking about uniforms. Uh, I don't know if you remember or not, but the Chicago White Sox once put on shorts to play baseball. Uh, there was a period in the 80s, I think, where they decided it would be different to wear shorts out on the field. And they had shorts as, as their jerseys, their bottoms. Crazy. You know what? I, I think I read about that. Uh, and i tell you where I read about that. This is there, and, I, and I wanted to ask you about this. If you've ever heard of this book, this book is called uh, Big Hair and Plastic Grass by Dan Epstein. No, I don't think I have. Uh, worth checking out. It uh, basically uh -huh. covers some of the craziness of the of seventies baseball and some of the wow. crazy antics. Uh, you mentioned one of those antics when um, Charles Finley uh, brought out the orange baseball. Orange baseballs, uh huh. Yeah, yeah. And I'd asked one of my guests about that one time, and uh, and they said, um, and I think it was actually um, Michael McCambridge. It was a writer. Um, and if anybody has a chance to listen to that interview and you love the seventies, you want to listen to that one because he wrote a book about seventies sports, uh, and an amazing writer, an absolute amazing writer. Uh, but he had said that it was more, not just a gimmick, but he thought the vision would be better with the baseball, be able to see the baseball better. Um, mm -hmm. so actually I would think that would be an advantage to the batter because you'd be able to see the ball coming in better, but, uh, that was very short lived. Yeah, yeah, not not a long uh, life for that one. That was short lived. But the uh, Charles Finley himself was a very kind of creative guy. I mean, yeah, you look at the, mm -hmm. the A's uniform. I ranked that up there as another great uniform: the yellow, the green, um, very colorful, and they had great players. Um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Just quickly getting back to, to Pittsburgh Pirates before I go off on a total trajectory there. Um, <laughs> I also love the stars on the uh, come about. Who thought of that? Was that a Stargell thing? Uh, absolutely. Willie Stargell. He was the captain of the team. And what he would do is when a player had a great game or made a great play, something like that, he would give them a star. Uh, and they would collect stars on their hats for all the, the good things they did that year uh, during the season. Um, and, and Stargell was just, oh my gosh, you start talking about Stargell, class, 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 class act. Um, what I mean, in Pittsburgh, if, if you didn't know Willie Stargell personally, you knew him anyway. Uh, he, everybody 
just looked at him like, you know, they we related to him. He was like a grandfather figure to everybody. He's just uh, one of the most beloved athletes ever in Pittsburgh. Yeah. And you know what? That, that came across the screen because I was, you know, living in Brooklyn. Uh, we were watching this on a black and white TV. Um, that those games, I was watching them with my dad. And I remember how cold it was during those games. I remember these long, long sleeves. Everybody's wearing long sleeves. And, uh, and there was something about Willie Stargell, man. He was so, you could tell he was the captain of that team. You know, sometimes yeah. you, you look at a team and you go, I wonder who the captain of that team is. Mm. There was never a doubt that he was the captain of that team. He was a leader. Yeah, um, absolutely. And it came across the screen. He was such a, a, a warm guy, you know. And Definitely. So, so he was a big, a big star in, in Pittsburgh, too, right? Oh, yeah, my gosh. Uh, if you want to talk about the most beloved, famous athletes in Pittsburgh, it, it would come down to Stargell and Clemente, uh, without question. Um, and they overshadow even any football player. Uh, they're just they're idols, idols in Pittsburgh. Yeah, and Pittsburgh has a lot of a lot of great athletes. You know, rich rich history in uh, in all sports, uh, including the Steelers, the Pirates. Mm-hmm. And um, let me ask you this: I mean, while we're on the topic of baseball, um, you were very passionate about uh, Pete Rose and uh, mm-hmm. and his style of baseball, mm-hmm. and I appreciate that because. You know, you mentioned uh, several times in different podcasts that uh, you're never going to see a player run to first base on a walk. <laughs> That's right. And Charlie Hustle could do that. Um, mm-hmm. What is your sense that Pete Rose might ever get a chance to be inducted into the Hall of Fame? Is well, <clears throat> to me, it's a crime. I mean, it's an absolute shame. Yeah, you got guys in football now betting on the sport, getting suspended and whatnot and everything. Nobody's getting thrown out of a league. Uh, so even if he betted on the Reds, okay, so he committed something stupid. Um, the Hall of Fame is not supposed to represent your character or what you did off the field or something. Dumb. It's supposed to, It should be, and maybe it's not, but it should be based on what you've done in the game as a player. And if that's the case, then Pete Rose is getting robbed because he is absolutely one of the greatest baseball players ever. Um, not just for the way he played a game, because look at his stats. Now, this guy played with so much heart and so much desire. You, you just don't, you will never see that again. Yeah, he ran down to first base on a walk. Um, he would run hard all over the field. And of course, he gets a lot of flack for his play in the 1969 All-Star game when the National League and American League were playing. And he ran home for the winning run and knocked over Pete Fossey, almost like a football tackle. But Fossey was blocking the plate, so that's what you're supposed to do. And he broke, separated Fossey's shoulder, and Fossey was never the same player. But, you know, Rose, that's the way he played the game. And people said it was just an all-star game. Why do you? Well, he took every game seriously, uh, whether it was an all-star game or a regular game. And to this day, people still criticize him for that. But it, he did what he had to do. Right. Yeah. It's a shame. I mean, uh, I know a lot of people in that talk about the cancel culture. 
And I almost feel that, uh, that Pete was probably one of the first victims of that. I mean, I don't think mm -hmm. no, nobody called the cancel culture then, but, um, it almost feels like if that happened today, that's what this, that would be a part of. It. In other words, you know, erasing somebody's history, um, and their great achievements over, and this isn't to minimize what people do, right? I mean, you meant, I'll give you an example. Uh, Ty Cobb, right? Ty Cobb, we know today was uh, an outright racist, uh, not the nicest guy in the world, had a lot of flaws, but no one's yanking him out of the Hall of Fame, right? No, not at all. And he played the same way. They're, they're mirrors of each other. Cobb would run you over on the base path, too, if you had a, he had the chance. Um, <clears throat> and, you know, there, there can be reasons for keeping a guy out of the Hall of Fame. Look, Barry Bonds is never going to make the Hall of Fame. The writers have it up against him because of steroid usage, which he'll deny to this day, which I, I don't believe. I know he did it. There's no doubt about it. But it, it affected the way he played. It affected his game. It gave him better abilities, according to some people. So he changed. He altered his his play on the field. Pete Rose never did anything like that. So why are you going to keep him out of the Hall of Fame? It's just a travesty. Right. Absolutely. I, I agree with you. I think Pete Rose could be in the Hall of Fame. Um, and I also think this, and, and then maybe this is controversial, and, and you tell me what you think of it, but I've always felt that at this point, with everybody, with steroids being in such wide use, uh, why not just legalize it and say, you know what, go ahead and play uh, use steroids? Because at this point, everybody's using it. And uh, why don't we just level the playing field and let everybody be, you know, on steroids? Uh, what, what, what do well, you think of that? My belief is, you know, I, my belief is that you can take steroids. Yeah, it might make you stronger, might increase your energy level, might give you more endurance. But the bottom line to me is you still have to be able to play the game. You still have to know how to swing the bat, how to run the bases, football. You still have to know how to tackle and whatever else. So maybe you're getting a little advantage in endurance. Um, but as far as baseball and football goes, I, I really don't think it changes drastically a person's capabilities, physical capabilities or ability to play the game. Now, I, I, I'm a big fight fan, too. And, you know, for a long time, I was watching UFC. Lately, I haven't been watching as much. But now there, you have a big problem with steroids because this is grappling. This is phys more physicality. And, of course, if somebody is taking steroids and becomes much stronger, they are going to be much stronger than the guy across from. And that plays a big part in that sport. So in that sport or boxing, then I would disagree that they should be able to use that stuff. But the other sports, I don't think it's, it's, it has as much effect as, as people think. Right, right. But um, in terms of, uh, <clears throat> let's, let's say Sammy Sosa and Mark McGuire weren't on steroids at the time, do you think they would have even been in contention for the home run title? I mean, it, the crazy thing is, if you want to take a look, if your listeners want to take a look, go look back at Sammy Sosa when he first came into the major leagues. Then look at Sammy Sosa at the end of his career. It's night and day. This dude was a skinny little twig. And when he got ready to retire, he was like a, a freak of nature. He was huge. And the same with Mark McGuire. I'll never forget watching an interview with him. 
and he had a short sleeve shirt on. And I was looking at his biceps going, Jesus, <laughs> that's unreal. That dude was yeah. huge, and that had to come from steroids. So did it have an advantage? I don't know. I think they made a bigger deal out of it than what it was. They could still hit the ball. Um, I think with even without steroids, they still would have been hitting home runs. I don't know. It's hard to say. Yeah, I don't think it's easy to hit a 95-mile-per-hour fastball whether you're on steroids or not. There's an there's there's innate talent that you got to have a skill to be able to do that. But uh, clearly, if, if it gives you have the power and you can launch those balls and then you know have those home run stats because of the steroids, then, yeah, the steroids is giving you an advantage. I just mm-hmm. think that, well, hey, let's just level the playing field because it's not fair to the guys you know, let's say you or I were in a, in a sporting act. We're doing MMA. Well, what's, you know, you're on steroids. I'm not. Why don't we level the playing field? Yeah, at least mm-hmm. we'll know who's got the skill. We're both strong. We can, we can attest to that, but let it come down to skill. Uh, I mean, it, it, they, um, yeah, I'm sorry. They, and they, and they will also, it's just not just steroids. It's other kinds of drugs they deem illegal. And one case in particular, I just read about the other day, it was this uh, Olympic skater, I think it was, from Russia, who helped their, them win the team goal. And there were suspicions about her using some illegal drug. Well, they went back now and stripped the, you know, the Russia, stripped Russia from having the gold medal. And it looks like the United States is going to take it because they finished second. But they're stripping them because she, it wasn't even steroids. It was, I don't even remember what it was, but it was just some drug that she was taking. Um, I thought that was a little ridiculous. Right. Well, steroids is very controversial, and uh, mm-hmm. I don't think it's ever going to go away. Really. That's why I almost feel like if you legalize it, you take a lot of this uh, nonsense out with stripping people and, uh, and you know, kind of revising stuff, like Lance mm-hmm. Armstrong, you know? Yeah. I mean, the guy is talented, you know, mm-hmm. and, and he's skilled, and Who's to say that other people weren't using steroids uh, at the time as well? Uh, yeah. It seems, it seems almost revisionist to go back and say, okay, well, you were on steroids, you weren't, and we're going to take away and diminish your, your, uh, your team. Yeah, absolutely. It, it's a sensitive world, and, and things are taken very, very sensitively uh, uh, in the sense that, you know, people want to jump on controversies like that and make bigger deals out of it than they maybe should. You think uh, steroids will ever be legalized and uh, accepted no. in part of sport? No, no way. Uh, it's just too much up against it. It's got such a reputation of being such a bad thing. I don't, I don't see how that's ever going to happen. Yeah. Now, uh, I'm not an advocate of steroids. <laughs> I want you to know that. I don't use steroids. I don't uh, think it's well, good for, for anybody. But to I be honest with you, it, it, it's got bad side effects. So I don't know anybody who want to take them. Uh, you know, it, there's some really negative things that come out of using steroids. Sure. There's that acne you get on your back that they call mm-hmm. acne. There's, mm-hmm. you know, the temporary. That uh, I saw this documentary uh, going to wrestling where superstar Billy Graham talked about the pain that uh, he has to endure now. His mm-hmm. joints are all screwed up. Uh, his muscles are all screwed up. Uh, he walks with a cane, or when he was alive, he walked with a cane. Um, it's, it's, it's a horrible thing. 
the effects overall. Uh, mm-hmm. My contention is just uh, to say that um, if you're going to level the playing field and allow steroids to be in the sport um, and and be you know with a warning, hey, just like you put on cigarettes, be aware this is, has long term effects. Uh, but in the end, it's not fair for any athlete to have to compete against other athletes that are. Mm-hmm. You know, have that edge, competitive edge. And it, if you look into combat sports, you will find many, many, many stories of guys that were on steroids that became violent. There's even guys that have killed their girlfriends or wives, and they blame it on steroid use. So it does. That obviously has an effect in that way, in that manner. Uh, speaking of which, well, a little bit uh, with football, and, and again, this is a kind of controversial as well. Um, what is your take on um, the discovery uh, that's been around for a while now that uh, concussions, suicides that have happened because of the uh, concussion? CTE. Yeah. Uh, what What is your take on that, and, and do you think that that'll ever get better, or what, what do you think is going to happen? <laughs> You know, they had that movie about CTE. I forget what the name it was. I think uh, Will Prince, um, uh, Will Prince, Will Smith was in it. Um, and mm-hmm. it's basically on this Pittsburgh doctor to kind of just, yeah, yeah. Um, and so I, I don't know. It's hard to say. Of course, these guys, you know, they, you have a lot of physical problems after football. It's a tough sport. Um, the thing that kind of amazes me is they're trying to protect players these days from and concussions is such a big thing. But <laughs> you go back in history, the time I grew up and before my time and watch football, it's amazing how these guys didn't have more physical problems because that sport, the sport back then was brutal. I mean, you used mm-hmm. to be able to clothesline people. Uh, Frank Gifford was <laughs> a recipient of one of those. Uh, and he got as clothesline once and broke his jaw, I think, and he was never the same player. So back then, it was it's a rough sport. Um, right. But you'll see a lot of these guys. Um, uh, who was the, the linebacker from San Diego who killed himself? The name slips me. Shot himself in the chest. Himself in the chest. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. I don't know. Oh my gosh! I can't believe Why? I can't remember his name. But they blame that on CTE. Um, yeah. There had to be more to it than that. Uh, I mean, he uh, must I have been if I'm depressed. Not mistaken, his motivation for shooting himself in the chest was not to uh, hurt his brain. If he had to shoot himself because he wanted uh, his brain to be tested for uh, that's right the, the effect of the concussion. You're right. I can't remember his name either. I know. I oh my god! Uh, it was like a Samoan name, or yeah, yeah, he was. He was uh, I feel I feel very embarrassed not to remember his name. <laughs> Yeah, I'm usually okay. good like okay. that. Yeah, we'll we'll we'll, we'll research that. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, uh, so concussions uh, are a part of the sport, uh, but they're also part of other sports too, um, mm-hmm. which leads mm-hmm. me into wrestling uh, because uh, a lot of uh, wrestlers uh, uh, have complained about that too. That there's mm-hmm. concussions. Some of some of the stuff that they have to do, hitting each other over the head with chairs and stuff like that. Uh, yeah. Can, has led to some debilitation. Um, mm-hmm. What is your uh, take on uh, as far as wrestling's athleticism? Uh, do, do you look at it as, as just a, a fake 
fakery or or do you see the athleticism in the the uh, entertainment? Well, as we're now leading into wrestling, um, I no longer watch it at all. Uh, it's it's too much entertainment and and less trying to show that these guys are athletes. Um, and that's where we were going to go today was back to my day in the seventies and maybe early eighties and prior to the seventies because I was a big fan back then. Being from Pittsburgh, we had Bruno San Martino. And he's another hero in Pittsburgh, even despite how anybody wants to look at wrestling. He's still one of the most popular people in Pittsburgh. Um, and so back then, um, I'll be the first to admit, I, I, it's entertainment. And it's it was entertainment back then. Um, they tried back then to make it look more like a sport, like real wrestling. But it's scripted. We know that. And they write the outcomes and whatever else. But back then it was fun to watch because they made mm -hmm. it look more like a sport. Uh, and mm -hmm. yeah, there's a lot of very, very good athletes that wrestle. Now, I can't speak for the last 30 years because I don't watch it anymore. But back in my day, yeah, they, there were some guys that were very athletic. Um, and it was a lot of fun to watch. It was entertaining because they actually did look they were like they were wrestling each other. So it, it was really cool. And I used to go, Civic Arena used to be the, the venue in Pittsburgh until they put PPG Paints Arena in. But every Friday night, I'd go out there as a kid and, and watch Bruno San Martino or a, a slew of others wrestle at the Civic Arena on Friday nights. Uh, tickets were like 10 bucks, 5 bucks, something like that. A lot of fun. Right, right. You, uh, you mentioned uh, in one of our emails that you um, met. David San Martino, Bruno San Martino's son? Yeah, yeah. It's just, so Bruno's son, David, and I was just reading and doing a little research before the show, too, that they did have an outing. That, uh, they were estranged for a while because apparently David wanted to, before his career ended, wanted to do a tag team with his father, and his father mm -hmm. refused, probably because he was too old. Um, but David San Martino went to my high school. Um, and if he's listening, well, I'm sorry, David, but uh, I remember going out for wrestling in, I think it was ninth grade. Uh, and so they would call out your names to who you were wrestled to find out who the first string was, whatnot. And so he was supposed to be wrestling. And the coach is sitting there going, David San Martino. And he's nowhere to be found. So he says again, David San Martino. And from around the corner, he comes running out like his father would for a pro wrestling match. Um, Everybody there started laughing. I mean, the coach was cracking up. He's like, what this guy think he is? He goes out there and he gets pinned in about three seconds. Uh, so <laughs> he goes running back into the locker room, all angry and everything. Uh, starts throwing garbage cans around because everybody's laughing at him. I'm going to get my father after you. Funny story. Uh, yeah. But then that leads to me to another Bruno story that my father uh, – He's, he passed in 2009, but he, he was had a great story of it, and he was at, at the bank one day, and he used to have neck issues, and he put this brace around his neck to help his neck, and he was standing in line, and a friend of his happened to be there, and Doc, my dad, dad was a dentist, hey, Doc, what happened to your neck? He goes, oh, man, I was wrestling with Bruno San Martino, and he hurt my neck. He turns around, Bruno San Martino standing right behind him, heard the whole thing. Bruno says, I never heard a man in my life. My father was like red faced, so embarrassed. <laughs> Hilarious. I'll never forget that story. 
That's great. <laughs> yeah. So, oh, have, did you ever meet Bruno? I mean, did you have a face to face with him? Did you ever? No, never had a chance to meet Bruno San Martino. Um, but I did meet David. Uh, and the interesting thing is that Baron Shakluna, who used to wrestle in Pittsburgh and he's wrestled around the world from the Isle of Malta, uh, he was a patient of my father's. And oh, wow. uh, he came home one day. He says, hey, guess who's one of my patients? I was like, who? He goes, Baron Chaclun. I was like, no way. He says, yeah, yeah. He's, he now comes to see me for his dentistry. I said, that's really cool. That's great. That is great. So yeah. I have a list of uh, – well, before we get into the list, I, I do want to um, talk about studio wrestling. Um, yeah. Would, Tell me your memories of, of studio wrestling. We know so studio wrestling. Just so that the, the listeners know, it, it was a. It started in 1959, and it was a regular uh, wrestling uh, televised program that was televised on Saturday evenings on WIIC TV Channel 11 in Pittsburgh. And the host of the show was uh, Bill Cardill. Um, and uh, Bill Cardill is an interesting guy too. I read about him, mm-hmm. but. Um, uh, this was basically maybe they had about 300 fans filling the uh, studio wrestling arena, uh, the, the seating, and uh, there were lines to get these tickets. This was uh, this was a big deal in uh, Pittsburgh, right? Oh yeah, oh yeah, it's a regular. Now <clears throat> it came on. It came on around at six o'clock in the evening at WPXI Channel 11 in Pittsburgh, and that's a staple. If you were home on a Saturday at six o'clock, you were glued to your television watching uh, studio wrestling. Uh, and speaking of Bill Cardell, he actually lived down the street from me. I never got a chance to meet, unfortunately, either. But he was a neighbor. Uh, and for those who have never seen the original movie, Night of the Living Dead, he's in it. He played the news reporter in Night of the Living Dead. So that was kind of cool. Uh, but he also. George Romero, right? Yes, George Romero. And, and of course, okay. he did The Day of the Dead. Um, Dawn of the Dead. They had sequels yeah. to that. Um, yeah. I think it was Good. Dawn of the Dawn of the Dead. I think was filmed in the Monroeville Mall. Uh, part of okay. that near near me in Pittsburgh. Uh, Love that. But movie. Bill Cardill was also the host of Chiller Theater, a staple uh, show on television Saturday nights in Pittsburgh, where they would show horror movies. And he was the host. And that was on for the longest time. So, yeah, Bill Cardill, very, very, very popular in Pittsburgh. But if you have a chance, your listeners have a chance, go back and watch the original Black and White Night of the Living Dead. And when you see the news reporter, you will see Bill Cardill. Bill Cardill, yeah. Interesting guy. I mean, what I read about him was, yes, he he doubled as the wrestling host. And then uh, for Chiller Theater, Mm -hmm. um, he, he was the host of that show. And that's how he got his nickname. Chilly Billy. That's right. Uh, uh, so, uh, and uh, interesting, interesting that I would almost think that a, a movie could be made about him and his uh, hosting. Uh, well, there is, there is a website out there. I've seen it. I've looked at it um, dedicated to Chore Theater. So for those who want to go take a look, uh, I'm sure you can find it. I don't know what the URL is, but it's out there and it's pretty interesting because he had all kinds of cast of characters alongside of him that he developed over the years. To be on the show with him, one of them with this little dwarf who's hilarious. You have to see that to to get a good laugh. Uh, it was right. a fun show, but yeah, ranks, ringside wrestling was was huge. Um, and then, like I mentioned before, Civic Arena 
had wrestling matches every Friday night. We'd go and watch those. Uh, lots of fun. Nice. Nice. I'll, I have a list of wrestlers. I'm going to uh, name them. These are all Pittsburgh-based uh, wrestlers um, that were either on studio wrestling or uh, were, you know, native to, to Pittsburgh. So um, I'll start with the first one: Haystacks Calhoun. Oh my gosh! Memory. <laughs> oh yeah, uh, I've often told my wife about that just to show her to make her, you know, let her see this this character because Haystack Calhoun was well over 500 pounds. Um, and he was very, very popular back then. Unfortunately, he died young and, and mostly because of his weight. But um, I remember, I think it was Bruno that became the first wrestler to body slam Haystack Calhoun. And that tells you how strong Bruno San Martino was. In fact, there was a story years ago that uh, when I was growing up, hundred pounds. Yeah, he was huge and always had his farmer jeans on with the, the uh, you know, the, the type of farmer jeans he always wore. That was his, his uniform, suspenders. Uh, when I was growing up, they wrote a story. I remember reading it. They were trying to figure out who the strongest man in the world was. And Bruno San Martino was right up there. Uh, I think Wilt Chamberlain was in there and Bruno was right up there in the, like in the top five. Uh, he was, you talk about an athlete. He was an athlete. Strong, strong, strong. So, yeah, so you were saying that Bruno San Martino, one of the strongest men right up there with uh, Will Chamberlain in the world, right? As far as far that. Yeah, it was an article, an article somebody wrote, and <clears throat> they were trying to pick who the strongest man in the world was. Interestingly enough, now they have a uh, competition, strongest man in the world that came on later. Um, and they did have a few wrestlers, football players in that. But this article was about who's the strongest man in the world. And Bruno was right up there with Will Chamberlain as one of them. And, and Bruno was strong. He, he was just an amazing athlete too. He was very athletic. Right. Absolutely. And he was a great champion, a uh, long time champion, uh, mm -hmm. WWF, uh, when it was the WWWF. And, right. Um, yeah. So, and uh, he, his participation <clears throat> in Pittsburgh actually made uh, Pittsburgh a, territory of the WWF when mm -hmm. uh, because of that by extension uh, so uh, Baron Mike Sakuna we, we talked about him um, yeah he actually went to your father's practice <laughs> it's just pretty that's cool. right my father got my father got inside his mouth at one point uh, <laughs> worked on his teeth that's cool. that's, that's yeah. up close and personal <laughs> that's right more than that um but, uh, you know, in the email, I mentioned to you uh, one of the historical uh, uh, facts or little trivia tidbits about uh, Baron Sakuna is that he was the wrestler who was wrestling uh, Gorilla Monsoon when Muhammad Ali, the audience, uh, and Gorilla got into it. And that I didn't realize that. I didn't realize yeah, that. Yeah. I watched that happen. I watched that happen, and I had no idea that it was Baron that was the opponent. Um, but I'll never forget that. And that led that incident led to the Muhammad Ali and Tony Inoki, uh, I guess you want to call it an exhibition, and Chuck Wepner and Andre the Giant uh, card yeah. that I actually paid to go see. Uh, it was at Pacific Green. I watched on closed circuit. Um, but yeah, Muhammad Ali came into the ring, was pointing at Gorilla Monsoon. Monsoon picks him up, puts him in an airplane spin, drops him on his back. And that, that led to this next event, which I paid to go see. And it was 15 rounds of a waste of money. 
uh, Muhammad Ali and Antonio Inoki, uh, because all Inoki did was get on his back for all 15 rounds, trying to get Ali down to the mat to do his thing. And right. it could never get him down there. But you know what, Ariel, from what I heard was that Ali's legs were so dinged up from all the kicks that Inoki was doing, he almost developed blood clots uh, in his leg. Yeah. Yeah, I believe he had to be hospitalized after the match because of the mm-hmm. amount of kicks that he was receiving to the back of his leg. Uh, I know that because uh, now let me ask you a quick question. This is a bit of a sideline. Do you do you remember Frank Redding? That name sounds familiar. Yeah, so Frank Redding uh, was a uh, member of our Sports History Network. He, he passed mm. away uh, sadly two know. years ago, um, and he had a show called um, Ringside with Redding, where he. Mm covered boxing. Wow. Um, the his, his historical matches, you know. And one of the, the shows he did was uh, wrestling and boxing. So mm. uh, Frank was the one who got me into the Sports History Network. And uh, he uh, he had me watch the Ali uh, Noki <laughs> fight because he said, you know, we were talking about possibly doing a podcast together and maybe doing yeah. a, a boxing wrestling thing. Mm. Um, so I watched that match too, uh, but I obviously I you, you saw it live, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. So uh, I saw it on on video, and I thought it was, I totally agree. It's the most boring thing I'd ever seen. It was yeah. just like this sucks. Like this. Well, I did research research on Antonio Noki before that because I didn't know who he was, and had he gotten Muhammad Ali down on the canvas. It would have been a nightmare for him because this dude was a, a technician, a wrestler. I mean, he knew moves that if he really put them on Ollie, he would have really seriously hurt the guy. So yeah. Ollie probably knew that. It's like, I am not going down to that cannabis for the life of me. <laughs> and I think Anoki knew that, hey, I'm not going to stand upright and fight Muhammad Ali, the champion right. of the world. He's going to get knocked out. Yeah. Uh, so it was one of those no contest things. This, uh, I agree with you. Boring. I'm sorry you had to pay to see that. <laughs> well, Chuck Wepner, Andre the Giant fight made it worth it uh, <laughs> because I don't know if you got to see that one as well. Uh, I thought Wepner, Wepner thought it wasn't going to be any big deal, but Andre the Giant's like, uh, screw this. Uh, I'm going to do whatever I need to do and was headbutting him, picked him up, threw him into the stands. Land him and he was a bloody mess, Weppner, when he came out of it. Of course, he was known as the Bayonne Bleeder, but and he bled like a like a fish in boxing. But you know, Andre the Giant took it seriously, um, much like the 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 Rocky Three movie when Hulk Hogan was in there and Stallone thought it was going to be an act, and Andre the Giant was, I mean, uh, Ch- uh, Hulk Hogan was throwing them all over the place. So it's funny. Yeah, I, and the funny thing is, I wonder. Um, if Stallone may not have seen that match himself and maybe borrowed that for Rocky Three, uh, yeah, based he, on the Chuck Webner thing. Yeah, he very may well, Webner, may well have. Chuck Webner's biggest complaint, talk about 30 and 30, I saw mm-hmm. Chuck Webner's mm-hmm. 30 and 30, and he said mm-hmm. that Stallone kind of just like, uh, and you know, this is, uh, Stallone's a very talented guy. I just, yeah. Webner's beef with him is that He's kind of taken all these big things in his life and used mm-hmm. it to to make a career out of Webner. And uh, I don't know what your feelings are about that, but um, 
Well, Wepner actually Wepner got his with that, he, he sued him over that. He took him to court saying he took my okay. story, made a movie out of it. Um, but I'm biased because my favorite movies all time are the Rocky series. So, I, oh, you know, God, I, too. oh, gosh, I could watch them a million times over and they're just as good every time. Uh, great, great, great series of movies. We just lost Carl Weathers yesterday. Uh, I didn't know that. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. He, Carl Weathers, uh, who played Apollo in uh, the first right. four Rocky movies, uh, passed away yesterday at the age of oh, wow. six. And uh, he was he was pretty athletic. I think he was a uh, former football player. He is. Even played, for the, played for the Bears, I want to say. Yeah, he played for a couple of years. Wow. Yeah. Uh, how, how was mm-hmm. he playing then, if you know? Um, he was, his NFL career was short lived. Um, I think he just, he wanted to be an actor. Um, so he was only in the NFL for a couple of years, but he was there. He, you know, he was a professional football player. I mean, you can look at the Rocky movies and see what kind of shape he was in. He, he was oh, a great athlete. He was in great, uh, he was a, a complete phys- uh, physical specimen. Mm-hmm. Um, in the Rocky movies and, and Predator, there was a story about, uh, Predator, right? Cause Predator, um, this is my own little trivia thing. It's the only movie that features two former governors <laughs> in the movie. That's right. Oh my gosh, Ariel, you're pointing out some interesting things here. I didn't even realize you're right. That's right. Yeah, Arnold Schwarzenegger and Jesse the Body. Were yeah. You, right? These guys oh my god. Governors of state. I saw something. Yeah. I saw something on TV the other night with, with, uh, Jesse Ventura just recently, like a commercial or something. Like, oh my God. I said, Jesse Ventura. Yeah. I said, oh my goodness. He's still around. Crazy. Yeah. He is still around and he's very, still opinionated, uh, mm-hmm. still, uh, still involved in politics. He, he's a major, uh, a major figure in wrestling. Definitely has changed wrestling for the better, sure. I think. Sure. Um, so so um so we're talking about the Rocky movies and uh the physicality there. There was something else mm-hmm. when you were talking I I got a uh, point uh you know, go back to that. But I lost that train of thought. Let me name another wrestler uh, sure. until that train comes. <laughs> yeah. Dominic Danucci. Oh my gosh, Dominic Danucci. Oh yeah. Um Dominic was another really good athlete, really good shape. Uh, I remember watching him, and he was just in phenomenal physical shape. Um, but he was a staple, definitely on that show. He was every week; he was there. So yeah, he's he's not a popular popular wrestler. Yeah, Dominic Danucci, by the way, uh, one of his wrestling students uh, was Mick Foley. Um, wow. with Mick Foley. Yeah, what? Uh, Mick Foley and Shane Douglas. Here's something he's more. Bit, yeah, something very interesting. When I was doing my research, Ariel, Dominic Danucci died August 12th, 2021. Okay. Uh, Tony Marino, who was known as Batman on Studio Wrestling, came into the, to the ring with his Batman uniform. He died on May 28th, 2021, same year. So then I went and looked and I think, I think there was a third one, um, that also died the same year. It was just kind of odd that these, these guys died within, months of each other um and i thought there was a third one but there's not but the other one that i came across too is bruno died, died in 2018 uh and then in the same year 2018 
um, also passing away, uh, was Johnny Valiant. And mm. this was just in a couple of months of each other. So it's kind of odd. Actually, it was April 4th. Uh, Johnny Valiant died. Bruno died April 18th. So within just a couple of weeks of each other, two very, very popular wrestlers from that show passed away. Kind of interesting. You know, when, we, when you say that, uh, I, now, I found that interesting. Tony the Batman Marino, when he went in the ring, was he really dressed like Batman? Like Batman from what? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. He came in with a Batman uniform on. It was hilarious. Uh, funny. So, yeah, very, very funny. funny. Was he any good or was he just a joke? Yeah, no, he was pretty good. I mean, but he was only really a Pittsburgh staple. He did not wrestle worldwide like a Bruno did or Baron did or Dominic DiNucci. Uh, oh, but so he was pretty much just a regular on studio wrestling. Gotcha. Gotcha. Uh, Gorilla Monsoon. Yeah. Um, Gorilla is one of the originals for me. I mean, he goes way back and uh, um, definitely one of the popular, most popular wrestlers. And I don't really recall seeing him too much on studio wrestling, but I knew of him from other national wrestling shows. So Brian Solomon, uh, the author summer about the original, uh, is working on a book. Gorilla Monsoon. It should be out actually at the beginning of this year, so uh, we should be looking out for that soon. Uh, Gorilla was really close to Bobby Heenan. They had a very close relationship. Are hmm. you aware of uh, their relationship? Uh, not, not so much. Not so much. Mm-mm. Yeah, They were very good friends and uh, you know, family summer together, that kind of thing. Um, so I just you know, I was wondering if you knew anything about their, their friendship. Yeah. And, uh, mm-hmm. but the upcoming book highlights, uh, Gorilla Monsoon's career and his, uh, uh, his friendship with, uh, Bobby Heenan. Um, so I just wanted to put that out there. Um, moving, moving on from, from wrestling, uh, you know, we discussed, uh, uh some of the Pittsburgh locals, um, and, and the mix of boxing and wrestling. Kind of want to move it over to boxing. What's, um, okay. What is your feeling about the state of boxing today? I know you're an MMA fan. Um, what's up with boxing today? Yeah, before we go there, I just want to one more wrestler I have to mention is George the Animal Steel. George the Animal Steel. George the Animal Steel, Because he was the most colorful character of all of them. And the funny thing is, the guy was a school teacher. Uh, and he decided to do pro wrestling on the side and became full time, whatever. And of course, people that remember him will remember the green tongue and then chewing up the turnbuckles and so that the the stuffing would come out of him. Funny, funny character. Uh and act crazy on the in the ring. But meanwhile he's as most he's as sane as anybody. Uh so it's kind of funny. But uh boxing I'll tell you I'll tell you one real quick thing about George the Animal Steel. In doing research for, for our interview, um I, I looked of course YouTube is a invaluable yeah resource for, for videos. Um so I'm watching this video of uh, George Animal Steel versus Bruno San Martino. Mm-hmm. And uh, in the video, so funny, uh, George the Animal Steel is going outside the room with audiences. And there's a little old lady, a hand dog. And she keeps George the Animal Steel with her handbag. <laughs> uh, and he's there, he's taking it. 
And uh, the announcer says, well, we know George Animal Steel, he's not playing with a full deck, but he seems to be enjoying the, the handbag. <laughs> and she just keeps hitting him with it, and he's standing there taking it. I don't know if he's just uh, trying to toughen up for San Martino, but what wound up happening at the end of the match is San Martino just pummeled them uh, wow. to the point where the referee stopped the match. And how often yeah. do you see that? The referee stopping the match. Yeah. So, uh, uh, he, he, played, great. he played the character to the hilt. Now, switching to the subject you s- just mentioned, um, of course, I, I became a sports fan in 71, watched baseball, and then, of course, thanks to the Immaculate Reception, became a diehard Steelers fan, uh, but then just latched onto boxing and just loved boxing, loved it. Um, and so I consider myself a pretty good historian on boxing the 70s and the 80s. Started to lose interest when all the big names started dropping off and di- retiring or disappearing. So I don't watch as much anymore. But yeah, I, I, I started watching MMA when it, UFC came out and became a huge fan of the UFC. Um, lately, it's become too much of a, too much of a show, too much showing off. Um, just it's turning into a clown show. So I, I just can't stomach it as much as I used to. Um, I still love the sport and I'll watch it now and then or watch for the results because there are some bigger fights I want to see. But yeah, they uh, decided to try to take uh, boxing and M- well MMA fighters going into boxing. Uh, and so um, Jake Paul, he's p- responsible for all that. Um, you know, he's making tons and tons of money, not just off of YouTube, but now off of his boxing matches. He's taken on all these MMA fighters and they're Making a bigger deal out of Jake Paul than I think needs to be because he's taking on MMA fighters that are washed up. So obviously Tyrone Woodley couldn't make it anymore in UFC. He was a champion. He kept losing, losing, losing. He decides to go into this boxing match with Jake Paul. And the first time around, he loses. Second time, he gets knocked out cold. Um, so I kept saying, well, when Jake Paul takes on a real boxer, then we'll see how good of a boxer he is. So of course he took on, um, uh, which his name's uh, stepbrother, and I can't remember his name. Um, but he lost the decision. He was clearly outclassed. So, for those who think Jake Paul's a real boxer, he's not. I don't know one particular rivalry or one particular match that really uh, stands out in boxing that you'll always say. You say this is probably the best fight of all time. Oh my God! Great question because I've seen so many fights. Um, immediately, the first one comes to mind. Because one of my favorite fighters, fighters growing up was Marvin Hagler. Uh, Marvelous Marvin was absolutely one of my favorites. Um, and so his fight with Tommy Hearns, you can still watch that on YouTube. Like you said, there are plenty of videos. Go watch it. What a fantastic fight. Three rounds of complete warfare. Um, and they just went toe-to-toe. And if it had been anybody else other than Marvin Hagler, Tommy Hearns would have knocked the other guy out. And that's another one of the fighters I really love is Tommy Hearns, one of the most underrated fighters in the history of boxing. This dude yeah, yeah. had a right hand that was like a sledgehammer, and that would lead me to my second favorite when he fought Roberto Duran. Now, Roberto Duran was tough as nails. Um, and as a lightweight, nobody would have ever beaten him. He moved up to several weight classes, came to fight Tommy Hearns. And I never thought I'd see the day that Roberto Duran would get knocked out. But Errol, you've got to see that fight. If you haven't seen it, go watch that one because Burns knocked him out with a right hand that made him faceplant. 
Roberto Duran just fell forward like a tree falling and was out cold. I've never seen like I never thought I'd, and that to me to this day is still shocking that he got knocked out like that. So those two definitely stand out. But I did go to see pay per view Larry Holmes, Jerry Cooney. Um, I paid for that one, and uh, somebody I was with at the time said, "Oh, Jerry Cooney's going to win this fight, no doubt about it." I said, "Are you crazy?" I said, "Larry Holmes will fight, and he'll win it easy." And he knocked him out in the thirteenth round. And the funny thing is, is that um, I don't know if you were aware, I was in New York as well for twenty something years. Um, uh-huh. I lived in Brooklyn as well. Uh, so I was working at this job. I'm on the elevator and this guy I worked with is from the, um, uh, Jamaica, big dude. He's like six, one, maybe. And I'm only five feet four. So my friend made me look small, Nigel Murray. Uh, and we're staying on a crowded elevator and out of the corner of my eye, I see this towering figure. I look over, turn my eyes, it's Jerry Cooney. And so I nudged my friend. I said, oh my God, look, it's Jerry Cooney over in the corner. He's like, no way. So we get off the other. Hey, Jerry, my friend said, very quiet. But, you know, he said, hey, how you guys doing? Shook my hand. And Ariel, I'm only five feet five. I looked up and I was like, oh, my God, this guy's huge. I mean, he looked like a mountain. I was like, oh, my God. So kind of kind of interesting story. I got to meet Jerry Cooney. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that because you mentioned it in one of your podcasts. We were talking about a uh, basketball player that was something like seven feet. And you were saying, well, I met Jerry Cooney, and he was huge. I can imagine someone who's seven feet tall That's right. or more. <laughs> That's right. Uh, you know. Us short guys, you know, we feel like little midgets when we can stand next to guys like that. <laughs> but Jerry Cooney was just a mountain of a man. He, and he, he was a good fighter. I mean, he, had he had some better training and, and learned boxing a little better, he, he may have been a champion one day. But if you want to – he had some of the most brutal knockouts you'll ever see. So – you get a chance, go look at the Ken Norton fight. Um, he knocked Ken Norton out the first round, and Norton got stuck on the ropes in a squatting position, and the referee didn't step in, and Cooney had free will at hitting him on the jaw, and it's one of the scariest things you'll ever see. I mean, I oh thought he God. was going to kill this guy. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Jerry, I feel like he was almost, you know, I have a lot of feelings about that, because that was a kid when I was watching, you know, because that was so hype, that, that match, that, that, mm-hmm. that was the the fight almost of the decade at that at that moment um and i feel i felt really bad for jerry cooney because i felt like it, it the undertones of that match it really felt like it was very racial and it was all about you know the great white hope and all that. i felt i felt bad for him that he got saddled with that because i don't think that's the type of guy he was no he was not at all and I, and I was what i was i was going to mention that next it's very unfortunate that that's the way they build that fight um, because it had nothing to do with that, you know. Yeah, right. And then it gave us bad feelings to something that really, you know. Listen, if he was unmatched, he was unmatched. But mm-hmm. and Larry Holmes is, is good. He had a good reign. He's a kind of underrated yeah. as a. I was just gonna say that Larry Holmes is another very underrated uh, champion. Um, underrated, and and he's an outstanding boxer. Um, he had some power. But unfortunately, he tried to stretch his career a little too long. And that's another one. If you want to go see a brutal knockout, go watch him fight Mike Tyson. Because Mike Tyson oh, just cleaned his clock. I mean, it was scary, scary knockout. Just And then Marvis Frazier. Tyson is Tyson one of my favorites because I think 
he made a major mistake by changing management, letting go of Kevin Rooney, losing Customato to death, um, a lot of these changes, and then saddling, saddling up with Don King. Because Tyson, when I watched him fight, had the potential to be the greatest heavyweight ever. No doubt about it. Up until the time he lost to Buster Douglas, nobody was going to touch this guy. He had such speed for a heavyweight and incredible power. And some of his knockouts were just so devastating. I remember watching him knock out Jesse Ferguson on national television. And they were interviewing him afterwards. and He broke Ferguson's nose. And this just tells you the mental character of Mike Tyson. And they asked him, he said, well, what'd you think about that knockout? He goes, well, I was trying to drive his brain up and his nose up into his brain. And I was like, this guy's crazy. Oh, my God. But he's scary, crazy, scary, crazy. His power was just unbelievable. And I would put him right up there with Joe Foreman, uh, George Foreman, with power. Um, Because if you see him fight Marvis Frazier, watch that fight. He knocked Marvis Frazier out in 30 seconds. And one of the scariest knockouts, just as equal to some of his other ones. Um, And then... One more fight I want to mention with Mike Tyson is Michael yeah. Spinks. And that's just another one. I went to uh, Madison Square Garden, actually, to watch it on pay-per-view. And they had live fights, and then they had this one. And my friend went with me, and when uh, Spinks got knocked out in 91 seconds, he goes, this fight was fixed. He said, you're not going to get knocked out in 91 seconds. I said, dude, go back and look at his eyes when he's laying on the match on, the, on his back on the canvas. His eyes are in the back of his head. That's the power of Mike Tyson. He hit him so hard. It didn't even look like a hard shot, but it was. Yeah. It's so funny. I had a paper party uh, in my uh, apartment at the time, and uh, we had ordered Donald. The fight was over. I, I was just- <laughs> that's, that's the unfortunate part of, of ordering a Mike Tyson fight. You didn't get much most of the time. Uh, but that's, that's just a credit to how how great a fighter he was and how powerful he was. Uh, and you may remember this, uh, the Mitch Blood Green story in the streets of New York. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he confronted yeah, uh, Mike. Yeah, Tyson hit him once, and his eye looked like it was going to come out of his head. Uh, the guy oh, was, I remember seeing that black and white in the Daily News. Mm-hmm. Oh, Sheer power. No joke. You don't <clears> approach <throat> Mike Tyson <clears throat> you know, with bad intentions because you're going to no. get hurt. <laughs> yep. Um, was an absolute student of boxing. He watched boxing mm-hmm. films. Uh, he knew his history. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, mm-hmm. especially, you know, you wouldn't think that of him. You would think, oh, Mike Tyson. But why would he be a historian? But he was. He mm-hmm. loved boxing history. Now, let me tell you, Mike Tyson's a dummy. Now, you're right. <clears throat> he studied boxing history, and he would often refer to it many, many times. And he goes all the way back to the turn of the century boxing. Uh, Jack Johnson, guys like that. Um, you know, uh, Jack Dempsey, he, he referred to the old-time fighters. Uh, so, yeah, he had a great knowledge of history. And, yeah, I pointed that out. And it's a shame that baseball players today, even football players, don't know who laid the groundwork for their sports. And that's a real shame. You should know your history of the sport you're playing. And who got you there? Because there's great athletes from the past in all different sports that were outstanding athletes and players didn't make a dime compared to what these guys make today. And I don't think they appreciate that, that these guys sacrificed jobs, uh, their personal lives, um, all kinds of things 
to make very little money and play a sport they love. I'm going to throw another controversial subject your way. Um, college basketball players, do you think they get compensated for their playing? Absolutely. I think they should treat that as minor leagues, college football and college basketball. But I think the what they should do if they're going to do that is you tell this athlete, yeah, we'll, we'll give you some kind of salary, but we're not paying for your education. If you're going to do athletic scholarships, I think you need to get away with those, do away with them. And if you're going to let a guy be paid to play the sport, then this is your minor league. If you want to get an education here, then you pay for it yourself. Um, mm. And I think that would work. But definitely these colleges, especially in football, are making so much, so much money. And they're making it off these guys' backs. These guys aren't getting anything for it. That's not fair to me. So, Harv, I, I got to say, uh, just listening to your podcast alone has tripled my sports IQ. <laughs> uh, and talking to you today has quadrupled it. Thank you so much for being on Wrestling with Heels On. I want to thank you so much for your podcast. Is there anything you want to? put out there to uh, my listeners and, and your listeners and, you know, sports fans in general? Well, no, but I, I appreciate the very kind comments. I mean, um, I've always considered myself uh, a historian. I love sports history, and that's that's my uh, focus, basically, is, is sports history. Um, I don't know how I've done it, but I just have an encyclopedia brain for, for sports history. I can recall many, many things. So, um you know, I, I won't forget, I'll forget something that happened yesterday, but uh, I can tell you what happened in 1971 or 72, 73 or in the 70s. Uh, so um, I developed, uh, you know, I've been writing since I was in high school um, for many publications and whatnot. So it's always about history. Um, I did have a steward's website for a long time, um, but I started focusing on, and thanks to my wife saying, you should have a YouTube channel on sports history. So I started with that. Um, and then, um, she suggested podcasting and I said, well, you know, I went to school for communications. I wanted to be a sports broadcaster It never panned out. Uh, I never did it. Uh, and then she gave me the idea for podcasting and I started doing it and I love it. I mean, this is just uh, so much fun. Uh, it gives me a chance to do what I really wanted to do. Um, and so I focus on sports history mostly, but I try to get as many interviews as possible. So for those who have never listened to my podcast, if you're interested, go back and listen. I have Terry Hanratty on there, used to play for the Steelers, back up to Terry Bradshaw, Craig Colquitt, uh, famous punter, Super Bowl champion with the Steelers, uh, Steve Fidel, a high school class of mine, played for Pitt and, and the Steelers. Um, Tim Glass was a, a star basketball player at Mohawk High School. Uh, and I found him through another one of my guests, Tim McCoy, who was a college classmate and friend of mine at Slippery Rock. He's the vice president of uh, Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania West Soccer now. Um, and so once you start uh, connecting with some of these guys, it leads to other connections. Uh, and so um, from B.B. Flannery uh, and Tim McCoy, I found Tim Glass. Um so Greg Meisner, he's played for the Rams. I recently reached out to him. I'm waiting to hear from him. Uh, so a lot of interviews. So Total Sports Recall is the podcast. Uh, if you Google it, you find it. Uh, my website, I have a website and a newsletter that goes with it, uh, Total Sports Recall at uh, totalsportsrecall.com. Um, so been very busy. Any, any 
publications coming out in books? Uh, when I retire in a couple of years, I do have some ideas for some books. So uh, we'll see in a couple of years if uh, those come to fruition. Um, but I do have an idea for a book called, um, it's going to be called uh, Six Great Sports, uh, 60 Great Memories. And it's going to be, I'm going to pick six sports and pick 10 memories from each and write about those. That sounds great. Excellent. Well, it's such an honor to be a, uh, a part of the Sports History Network with you. And uh, much continued success with podcasts as well as all your other endeavors. And uh, whenever you want to come back on the show, send me an email and we'll have you back on because I feel like you could talk about a lot more stuff. But, oh, yeah. uh, you know, we'll, we'll save it for the next time. Yeah, I appreciate you, you so having much. me on. And, and I think we didn't go into the 70s wrestling enough, so we're going to have to ha- – you know, focus on that for one episode and, and go back to that again. But uh, good luck to you, too. You have a great podcast as well. Um, and uh, very happy to have uh, great podcasts uh, in the Sports uh, sports History Network uh, like myself and yours and so many others. So everybody should go and look at some, listen to some of these other podcasts, but yours is very good. Uh, as soon as I listened to yours, I said, oh, my gosh, I, I got to have a podcast with this guy. Um, so I'm glad we did it. Um, and I, I can only wish you best of luck as well. And uh, we will definitely be in touch. You got it. Absolutely. Everybody join me in two weeks as we take another stroll down Villainy Lane and uh, only on the Sports History Network, of course. And please uh, check out Harv Aronson's Total Sports Recalls. You will learn a lot. And your sports IQ will also quadruple. Uh, join me in two weeks as we take another stroll down Villainy Lane and uh, only on the Sports History Network, of course. And please uh, check out Harv Aronson's Total Sports Recalls. You will learn a lot, and your sports IQ will also quadruple. <laughs> okay? So please do that, and also check out our other uh, podcasts. Uh, there are over 30 podcasts on the Sports History Network and growing. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com.